British officer carved up, his heart eaten by a Chippewa war captain. A schoolhouse full of settler children butchered and scalped, some of them while they were still alive. Smallpox-laden blankets distributed to Indians in hopes of spreading a lethal disease among the tribes. Christian Indians brutally lynched by an enraged settler mob. Frontier conflict is always brutal and ugly. The Pontiac's war was conducted with an exceptional level of savagery on both sides. The war produced a kind of rage and terror that imprinted itself on the cultures and individuals involved and shaped the events to come, including the American Revolution. Among the native insurgents, insults to their honor, combined with a sense of existential threat from British trade policy that seemed to be aimed at their subjugation or destruction, produced a rage that expressed itself in sudden, extreme violence. The British establishment was shocked and outraged by the brutally efficient taking of their posts in the North American interior, and General Jeffrey Amherst and his local commanders were both embarrassed and infuriated. Settlers, especially in the Pennsylvania backcountry, were soon subjected to horrific raids that left them terrorized and vengeful. This stoked exterminationist attitudes, a belief among some of the British High Command and among many backcountry settlers that all Indians should be eliminated by any means necessary. Pontiac's war took on a different character in the forests of western Pennsylvania, territory that the British colonists thought of as the backcountry, while the Delaware, Shawnee, and Mingo of the Ohio country saw it as lands that had been lost to them, taken from them, and the edge of an encroaching frontier. As in the Great Lakes re region, the native insurgents had considerable success knocking off small British posts, but they were unable to take Fort Pitt at the Forks of the Ohio, which is where the Allegheny, Monongahela, and Ohio rivers converge. Their strategy was to cut the fort's communications and supply lines, which meant filtering past it to the east. The region east of Fort Pitt was more heavily settled with English colonists than the Great Lakes region was, and these settlers became primary targets of the insurgency. That meant a war of terror waged against men, women, and children. Two raids will serve to illustrate the reach and the extreme brutality of frontier warfare during Pontiac's War. In July 1763, a Delaware war captain known as Shemokin Daniel led an extensive raid along the Susquehanna River and its tributaries on land that had once belonged to the Delaware, or the Lenape. Daniel was well known to British colonists. He had served as a guide to a peace envoy during the French and Indian War. And he had made his feelings about European encroachment clear, snarling at the envoy, Damn you! Why do not you and the French fight on the sea? You come here only to cheat the poor Indians and to take land from them. In July of 1863, not too long after the, the start of Pontiac's War, Shamok and Daniel and uh, 18 Lenape warriors left the Ohio country and infiltrated western Pennsylvania 
to attack the settlers in the Susquehanna Valley. They traveled on horseback during the day and slept with no fires at night and, uh, and moved quietly and stealthily into country that had a decade before been Lenape hunting grounds and was now peopled with Scots-Irish and German families. And actually, many of the, the women and children of those families had already fled eastward, knowing from the experience of the French and Indian War that attacks were, were coming. Shamok and Daniel's force hit the Juniata River and, uh, and moved in on the homestead of a settler named William White. And they approached this farmstead and made quiet noises that drew White to his door, and they fired on him and, uh, and killed him on his door stoop and then set fire to the house and killed two more men who, who appeared at the doorway. And then uh, a, a man tried to climb out of the window of a loft, and they shot him as well. There was a, a young boy in the cabin that was wounded, and they took him alive. And the boy's father, whose name was William Riddle, punched a hole out of the roof and, uh, and slipped away and ran off to spread the word of this attack. And in typical fashion in, in these kinds of raids, uh, Daniel's men killed the livestock, burned all the outbuildings, and, uh, and they only took what they could, could carry on their backs and on, on horseback. And uh, then they continued on and attacked the home of a settler named Robert Campbell. And uh, they caught them by surprise during their, their midday meal. Uh, one of the settlers was able to get off a shot and killed one of Daniel's men, but uh, the Delawares killed all the rest. And uh, then they moved on again, and by the evening had attacked yet another farmstead and killed a man named William Anderson and two children. Then the, uh, the next day, Daniel's men rendezvoused with another small party of raiders, just eight men. Uh, so they had uh, about 26 men, 25 men, um, after the death of, of one of their warriors. And uh, by this time, they knew that uh, settler militia would be out seeking them. So they set up an ambush and uh, 12 settlers who were pursuing them ran directly into that ambush and the Delawares killed five of them. So as, uh, as Gregory Evans Dowd notes in War Under Heaven, Pontiac, the Indian Nations, and the British Empire, the net result was this. A mere 26 Delawares and two parties had penetrated the Pennsylvania countryside and had killed at least 18 colonists, three of them children. They wounded an additional two men and carried off one captive. They suffered one fatality. Only 20 miles from Carlisle, well to the east of several Pennsylvania forts, colonial families mourned lost children and men. Animals that might feed troops or carry supplies lay dead. 
Vast fields lay untended as panic cleared out the countryside. That's a good depiction of the impact that these kinds of raids had. Of course, they were terrifying and terrible for those who were caught in them. And the raiders' kill ratio was tremendously favorable to them. Daniel only lost one man. But the effects of these raids were much broader than a mere body count and the destruction of property and livestock. The knock-on effect was tremendous. It created a great deal of terror, and families that, that heard about what had happened to their neighbors up the river would almost inevitably flee to the east, and this created a tremendous refugee crisis for eastern settlements in Pennsylvania and just cleaned out the countryside, which uh, made supplying the surviving forts like Fort Pitt farther to the west more difficult. So the effects of the raids were tremendous, with just small forces having a, a very large impact on both the tactical and the strategic situation in western Pennsylvania. I think it's fair to say that these raids were terrorism in its most classic sense. Their primary purpose was to create terror, and the effects of that terror influenced the military situation on the frontier. In another raid in July of 1764, Lenape, Delaware, Raiders slaughtered a, a schoolhouse full of children and also brutally killed a pregnant woman. What became known as the Enoch Brown Schoolhouse Massacre occurred on July 27th in 1764 in south-central Pennsylvania, again, well to the east of Fort Pitt. A schoolmaster named Enoch Brown was in the middle of conducting his lessons when a raiding party of Lenape, Delaware warriors, burst into this small one-room schoolhouse, and uh, Brown attempted to protect his, his students, and, and they tried to run but it was a one-room schoolhouse. It was a small space, and the raiding party had it completely contained, and they just began to, to slaughter the children. And uh, they shot Brown and killed him and scalped him while he was dying, and then began to kill the, the children, and uh, some, some of them were scalped while they were still alive. One of the children named Archie McCullough, was scalped but not killed, and he would actually survive the massacre, and uh, along with another small girl who was, was found later in a creek nearby trying to wash the blood out of her dress. The same war party ran across a woman named Susan King Cunningham who was walking to a neighbor's house 
Uh, she was five months pregnant. The Delaware warriors killed her and then cut the fetus from her womb and laid it beside her. Now, these kinds of episodes are, are ugly to recount. It's hard to tell these stories aloud because they paint such a horrific picture. But it's important to understand that these types of raids were not anomalies. They were not exceptional. This kind of thing happened over and over and over again on the Pennsylvania frontier in 1763 and 1764. It's also important to understand that these sorts of acts were not universally approved of by the Delaware themselves. There was a settler who had been held prisoner by the, the Delaware since the French and Indian War, since back in, in the wake of Braddock's defeat in 1755. I, I believe he was captured in, in 1756 and lived with the Delaware and later wrote an account of his captivity. And he depicted what happened when the raiders who committed the Enoch Brown schoolhouse massacre and killed Mrs. Cunningham returned to their, their town, the Delaware town. He said, I saw the Indians when they returned home with the scalps. Some of the old Indians were very much displeased with them for killing so many children especially Nipawisi, or Nightwalker, an old chief or half-king. He ascribed it to cowardice, which was the greatest affront he could offer them. So it's not hard to imagine the kind of terror and rage that was created by raids of this nature. And it's this context in which the British High Command contemplated and in at least one instance attempted to undertake genocidal biological warfare. During the siege at Fort Pitt, there were a number of conferences in which the besieging in Indians, this, you know, this wasn't a very tight siege, um, and at some points the besieging Indians sought to negotiate the departure of the British troops from the fort. And the garrison commander, Captain Simeon Ecurier, and a trader named William Trent, tried to convince the Indians that they should stand down. At one of these conferences in June of 1763, Ecurier and Trent gave the Indian negotiators blankets that came from Fort Pitt's smallpox infirmary. There had been an outbreak of smallpox, which was an extremely contagious and deadly disease uh, during the 18th century. And uh, the, the patients had been isolated, and Courier and Trent thought that it best to provide blankets from this infirmary to the Indians in the hopes that they would take them back to their villages and spread smallpox, to which the Indians had virtually no resistance at all, 
and, uh, and kill as many of them as possible. During the same period of time, General Amherst was corresponding with Colonel Henry Bouquet, who was a Swiss mercenary and one of the most effective commanders that the, the British had during Pontiac's war. And Amherst mused, Could it not be contrived to send the smallpox among those disaffected tribes of Indians? We must, on this occasion, use every stratagem in our power to reduce them. And he wrote later to Bouquet, saying, You will do well to try to inoculate the Indians by means of blankets, as well as to try every other method that can serve to extirpate this execrable race. This attempt at biological warfare proved not to be successful. It seems that there was a small outbreak, but it was apparently pretty contained and didn't have a widespread effect. But the contemplation of large-scale germ warfare and the extirpation of an execrable race is the way people talk about committing genocide. And it is an expression of a conviction that would later be articulated as the only Indian, the only good Indian is a dead Indian, which runs like a bloody red thread through the entire subsequent history of the Indian wars in North America. America's frontier story is, is a very stirring one and it stirred my blood for my entire life. But we can't forget that frontier partisan warfare, whether it's in the Pennsylvania backcountry in the 18th century or on the Texas border or in the African veld in the 19th century or in Afghanistan or Southeast Asia in the 20th and the 21st century, is both brutal and brutalizing. There's a cycle of violence that gets started and is almost impossible to break, and atrocities committed by one side against the other are often avenged against parties who were not directly responsible for the initial incident, and often against innocents, including women and children. And this happened over and over and over. The frontier people, both the native peoples and the colonial settlers were traumatized people. And they lashed out in the way that traumatized people tend to do. In December of 1763, a mob of frontier settlers known as the Paxton Boys focused their rage and terror on a small group of Christian Indians who were living among British settlers, and they were known as the Conestoga Indians. And they had been converted by missionaries and, and were living essentially like Englishmen uh, within the settlements in central and eastern Pennsylvania. And the Paxton boys were enraged by all of these murderous raids that were occurring especially along the, the Susquehanna River, including Shemokin and Daniel's incursion, and they were unable to really come to grips with the actual perpetrators. So the Paxton boys, who were led by a Presbyterian minister and militia commander named John Elder, turned on the Conestogas. 
word spread that these Christian Indians were harboring spies for the insurgents or passing intelligence to the insurgents. The Paxton boys may have convinced themselves that this was true, or they may not have cared. It was a pretext in any case. They wanted all of the Indians, regardless of their status or their affiliation, removed from the country or dead. And government authorities, recognizing that this was an explosive situation, decided to move the Conestoga Indians to Philadelphia for their own protection. But the decision came too late. The Paxton boys hit a village of Conestoga Indians and killed, um, there was just a small number of of them there, and, and killed six of them. And then a few days later, they found another number of the Conestoga Indians holed up in the workhouse in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where they were basically in custody for their own protection. Uh, They broke into the workhouse, chased the Indians into the courtyard, and, and hacked 14 of them to death. Now, this was more than a mob lynching. This became something of a political movement. The Paxton boys were armed, and they they moved on Philadelphia with demands that uh, more Christian Indians be handed over to them, and uh, also that a bounty be offered on Indian scalps, that militia bands who were patrolling against Indian raids be compensated, which they had not been up to that point. It's probably important to note that, that the colonial government of Pennsylvania still had a large pacifist Quaker element to it, and the frontier settlers felt that they were not being served or protected by their colonial government. So the Paxton boys actually posed a threat to overthrow the colonial government of Pennsylvania if they didn't get protection, compensation, and policies that uh, were more oriented towards exterminating Indians than protecting them. The Paxton boys were ultimately deterred by the presence of royal troops, but in a way their ideology prevailed, and the only good Indian is a dead Indian mentality had taken hold on the American frontier, and it would persist. We're going to see this sort of of episode replayed during the American Revolution with almost an identical script with Christian Indians massacred by settlers who were traumatized by horrific raids committed by Indian warriors that killed men, women, and children indiscriminately. And this sort of pattern would replicate itself through the Ohio River Valley and across the Mississippi and on through American history up until 1890 and Wounded Knee. This kind of cycle of violence really doesn't lend itself to a good guys, bad guys, morality play take on frontier history. This is really dark stuff and It is what frontier partisan history was made of. 
and I think it's it's our responsibility not to necessarily judge the actions of the people involved, but to try to understand them and try to understand how cycles of violence get started and how difficult it is once those cycles of violence come into play to break them and to change the paradigm. And I think that the pattern of behavior that lasted for such a very long time is illustrative of just how hard it is to stop that tit-for-tat sort of feud that developed along the frontier in these years of Pontiac's war. So let's pull back for, for just a second and, and, and look at the, the circumstances of the war on a strategic scale. Despite all of the damage that the native insurgency had done, Pontiac's war really began to lose momentum. The British began to score some military successes in the field, and there was a fraying of the alliances among the tribes, partly due to the hardships of the war, and partly as the realization dawned that the French were not going to come back and help the Indians to push the British out. So the British were able to solidify their hold on the North American interior, but they also didn't want the war to happen or out to break out again. And so they tried to redress the grievances that had led to the outbreak of violence in the first place. And those efforts, in turn, provoked resistance and rebellion amongst the American colonists, particularly those on the frontier who had been so terribly traumatized by the events of 1763 and 64. So the attempt to redress the grievances of the Indians laid a powder train that would explode in the American Revolution. And all of of that and those developments we're going to explore in the next episode of the Frontier Parsons podcast, the concluding episode on Pontiac's War. As always, I'd like to thank our patrons who support the Frontier Partisans podcast and and blog through our Patreon page. That's Ash, Harry Kaiser, Mike McIver, Wade McKnight, Chaz Clifton, Bob Dice, Alan Godseff, Jerry Nunnally, Christopher West, Matthew Free Live Free, Paul McNamee, David Rolson, and Rick Schwartfager. Uh, always appreciate your support. Um, if you're listening to the podcast and would like to throw down a few clues a month to, uh, to help keep it going, the link is in the show notes. And uh, like to cite a few of the, the books that have been important in the uh, creation of this episode of the Frontier Partisans podcast. Um, Again, Gregory Evans Dowd's Pontiac's War, or rather, uh, War Under Heaven, Pontiac, the Indian Nations, and the British Empire, 
remains a key source, as does a most troublesome situation, the British military and the Pontiac Indian Uprising of 1763-1764. Um, for the war on the Pennsylvania frontier, I would also uh, add David Dixon's Never Come to Peace Again, which uh, focuses on that region, and uh, also Brady Kreitzer's Gaia and the Fall of Indian America. And uh, those are, are all excellent books and well worth delving into if you'd like more information on this, uh, this dark but very important episode in American history. Uh, so we're going to wrap it up in the next episode and then move on to an entirely different frontier. The patrons know where we're headed, but uh, all, all I'll say right now is that uh, after we wrap up Pontiac's war, we're going to head down the trail for uh, almost a full century. And some of the weirdest and wildest action in frontier partisan history. So we'll see you down the trail. <laughs>